Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me, celebrating the world of long-form storytelling and hopefully not turning into a pile of goo by the end of our conversation, is my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, man. Yeah, I I hope not to, and I hope not to explode or anything else uh, or merge with a giant monster made of biomaterial. I'm really, really hopeful because the podcast would not be the same without you. Even if you were able to podcast as one of those things, I don't know that I could physically look at you while we discussed any future conversations of shows looking like that. So I'm saying this honestly and truly that you need to stay the same. I'm going to try. Uh, it would be hard to podcast in that form. I would just be screeching a lot. And true. I don't think you That's would true. understand what my screeches meant yeah well we are in the midst of this season three of stranger things the chapter is titled e pluribus unum latin for out of many one very appropriate title for this episode i think we speculated that there would be maybe the factions coming together and some of that of Mm -hmm. course happened on this episode but there was quite literally (laughs) a merging of people and their respective alien hosts that we saw. Right. So very much on the nose with this Latin phrase. <laughs> it, it was, it was. And, uh, and not the most, as you mentioned, not the most pleasant thing to look at, but uh, very well done. I have to say, I mean, the, the, the attention to detail and the visual effects, as we discussed last time, it's, it doesn't quite live up to the practical effects from back in the day when John Carpenter's the thing or, or whatnot. But it's still pretty for for CGI and for TV. It's pretty incredible what they they did with the uh, with the effects here. Yeah, for sure. I will say this, Adam. I didn't love this episode. It pushed the story along. It it kind of hit the right notes. But both times that I watched it, once for myself and once for the show, there were parts of it that I was a little bit like, no, really, uh, I don't know. Yeah. And obviously, I say this with the mindset that nothing's going to deter me from continuing to watch this and nothing's going to say, sure. You know, you set a standard, the Duffer brothers have set a standard that like, even if you don't love an episode, this is a lot like that reaction to the pocket episode that we discussed last season that you and I really both enjoyed. And if it were for, you know, placing it differently in the order of episodes, it might actually make a lot more sense and be a lot more fluid. This one, I think had some moments where, the creative team sort of leaned a little bit too far for me into tropes. Things got a little campy. And as someone who loves telling jokes and making jokes, I mean, if you've been listening to the show long enough, you know that I love cracking wise. There were parts of it that felt like they were getting away from the weight of what was actually happening, especially what was going on in this episode and the seriousness that we got to by the end of the, of the episode. Again, didn't deter me, but it definitely felt a little dissonance for the first time in my Stranger Things experience that was a little bit surprising. I was like, oh man, it's been amazing. It's been great. It's been good. And I was like, this is, this is good. Okay. 
Yeah. Let's, let's no. move on to the next one. That's good. But obviously we have a lot to talk about. It's going to be a good discussion. And um, yeah, just wanted to kind of give that out as a preface of like, here are my initial thoughts. Yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that as you're watching it, we're so, we're so far into this season now that we kind of want to see the culmination of all of this buildup. And so this episode, kind of like that episode from last season with Callie, it kind of cuts back and forth in a way that it slows down the progression. Like we're not getting towards the big finale quick enough, I guess. And as especially because we're doing this episode at a time, we're not binging it. We're not getting the reward as fast as maybe we want. Whereas if we were binging this, we might just watch it and go right on to the next and not even care that it slowed down a little bit at times in this episode because we're going to get that payoff in an hour, you know? <laughs> so anyway, just, just sort of wondering, because again, this is a different approach to how most of the initial viewers watch the show. Most of them just kind of plowed through them in the first day or weekend that they dropped. Right. That's pretty much what I'm feeling is that this felt like a, an episode of binging chemistry where you're using right. this to kind of thrust yourself into episode seven. And again, important things happen here, but I think that as a standalone episode, it feels like right. the second in a trilogy where it serves as a bridge story to move itself along. And, right. and that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But I think you're absolutely right. There's so much going on. We've got multiple stories happening and we sort of have to choose what to latch onto when we're dealing with this episodic approach. We're like, okay, what did I love? What did I not love? And I think in the past where we've had those different stories going on, I think they were entertaining in and of themselves, almost like little miniature stories that maybe they had a a start, middle, and end, but we didn't really address that. Or for whatever reason, we just appreciated the the pairings and how they were going through. This one feels a little bit like we've got an incomplete start to complete and then now an incomplete finish because we're moving to the next. It's just like almost like a jump uh, of sorts. And that may be what I'm feeling. I think so, because I, I feel it too. And I think it sort of leaves you not fully satiated. You know, I think it, you don't you don't feel like you're you're full. You want more. And again, if we weren't approaching it the way we are, we could have just gone right on to that next episode and received an extra portion, <laughs> an extra serving of Stranger Things that might have made us feel okay, now I feel good. I feel good about what I just watched. I think if I were to summarize it, it would be that my desire to move on to the next episode is still there but it's being motivated by a different reason. I'm not intrigued sure. enough to want to watch the next one. I just want to feel complete to get to the right. end of whatever story is being told. And maybe it's because I know that there are two episodes left and that, okay, if we're going to resolve this, which we know there will be resolution, how are we getting there? And maybe there's a little bit of impatience. So psychologically, it's fun to kind of explore, you know, the why of that. But again, I'll walk away, and as we get through this conversation, you'll definitely see that there's great <laughs> stuff happening in this yeah, and uh, lots to talk about. So with that said, we could just get right into it and start you know, do, having our fun with the, with the cold open, right? So yep. we start out. It's another one of those episodes where we are starting where the episode finished. We're in the underground Russian complex. The gang there 
that um, on this other pod I was listening to called the Scooper Troopers. That's what they were calling them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, Dustin's good. explaining to Robin and Erica all that we know. So he's giving them backstory about essentially season one, the Demogorgon and everything. And they're like, this is crazy. Erica points out that Steve's Russian friend is not there anymore. And then we hear alarm bells and the chase is on. And this whole sequence is just a lot of fun action. We get Dustin constantly yelling, holy shit, <laughs> which is dialogue wise, <laughs> just really funny. At one point, Adam, I don't know if you noticed this, his delivery, Yeah, his delivery of it, not necessarily the words, but there's a point where he's running across like a catwalk. And I don't know if he runs into a, like a super soldier. I forget what it is, but it scares the bejesus out of him. And he's like, his facial expression is just hilarious, but it's yeah. very much like they're taken off. And at the end of the scene, Robin and Steve are holding off the Russians while Dustin and Eric are escaping. And we get that sort of lighthearted tongue in cheek, but kind of sincere moment where Dustin's like, I'm not leaving you, Steve. I'm not leaving you. <laughs> and they're like, get out of here. And we get that great line from him. So clearly there's a little bit of fun being had with Dustin's bromance with Steve is still real, but this is not the time to be trying to be right, a, absolutely. a hero. Yeah. I kind of feel like too, when you look at the two of them here in their sailor uniforms, it feels like that's might be the only thing preventing them from not being just like shot on the spot was that they look ridiculous. You know, if they looked like right. police officers or, or military personnel or spies who were all in black or something, they would have just shot them. But because they're two teenagers in sailor uniforms, that might be the one thing that's keeping them alive at this point. Yeah. And it was pointed out to me that the actors here for six episodes have been in the same costume the whole time. (laughs) So I really do feel for these guys like, wow, you have not gotten to change. It reminds me of Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future, having to wear the same outfit pretty much for six years (laughs) because (laughs) time has not changed. It's still October of 1985 by the time we get to the end of the movie (laughs) or the end of the trilogy. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of makes you think how many different sets of sailor costumes do do each of these actors have you know to make sure that they're uh, in good condition and you know and and at this point they have to look like they've been through quite a an experience so they've got to be you know well worn and and damaged and yeah and have blood on them and they dirt be dirty so there's a lot that goes into uh into me making these actors look the way they do the continuity costume department if there is such a thing deserves a fat bonus at the end of the season just for those two yeah yeah if you think about it too this is not even very much time passing from the start of this whole season is in a very compressed window of time it feels that way at least feels like it's only a few days i think it is i think what amplifies their costume non-change is the fact that anytime we see them there at scoops ahoy so even if it's over a few days the characters obviously are changing out of their outfits because they have lives, well, presumably, outside Scoops Ahoy. Right. But that's a good point. We don't ever see any of them outside of Scoops Ahoy in this season, except for Dustin in the very beginning when he's first coming home from right. camp. Once he bands together with the Scoops Ahoy duo, that's it. That's like that's the only place we really see those characters in the mall. 
Yeah. The other big thing happening at the end of the episode is obviously the hospital. Things are going like whack-a-mole for these guys. And right. Will gets the tinglies, the uh, the goosebumps. The, the will the will tingle. The will tingle. The upside down <laughs> bumps. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he um, says he's here. And then Elle puts on what I call her battle face. So it's this face that we are familiar with. She had the face when she opened up the door to Heather's house. It's that kind of like angry face where she's like, don't mess with me. We've seen it several times already in this season, obviously in the first season when she's taking on the Demogorgon. And then everything just starts going haywire. The lights start flickering. Meanwhile, the nurse that I have criticized for two episodes, I will criticize for a third. Get out. You are apparently way too involved in your telephone conversation as you are still yelling at these children two at a time. Like, you don't know what's going on and all the chaos right. that's happening around you. So please leave. Go lock your doors. Do something that's going to save your life because you have no business and no value in helping these children. Yeah, she has no idea that there are entire floors in this hospital with every staff member murdered. <laughs> so she's so lucky. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. And she's yeah. completely oblivious. Uh, Great comic yeah, relief, though. Yeah. Great comic relief. Yeah, yeah. This is where the creature morphs into liquid to get into the room where Nancy is. So the creature's been chasing her. Jonathan's like, get out, Nancy! And... Just a quick observation. This is classic horror. Yeah, you got chases, flickering lights, a trapped potential victim. I liked this. This is one of those moments where I was like, eh, it's getting a little tropey. But I get it. You're an 80s television series, and you're going to do what feels comfortable. It was completely appropriate. And the tension was there. It wasn't like I was like, oh, yeah, she's not going to get killed. I mean, she might have. I mean, I don't see this series as being one that's going to kill off a main character in the middle of a series. But as we have fallen in love with Bob, as we had a sort of chance to fall in love with Barb, (laughs) there are the opportunities for characters that we enjoy getting killed, not just the bad people. Right. So at this point, the creature throws her across the room and does what I think is an alien homage. Gets right in her face and then screams. I I love this. This is probably the first time that we really get to see the dominance of this creature whatever it is. And I will say that I didn't say it at the beginning of the episode, but I've got questions that we might be able to sort of suss out at the end of our conversation sure, about yeah. this. So that I keep calling it the creature. I don't want to call it the mind player because I don't think it's the mind. I think it's something else, but I'll get to that. Then L comes in and basically does what I call a compass attack. So she throws him left and then right and then up and then down and then out the window. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I'm just, Wow. <laughs> Don't mess around with Jim. Don't mess around with L. Excuse me. We need to change the lyrics to that song because I don't think I've ever forgotten that L is that powerful, but sometimes I forget how powerful she can be. And this was, right. this was pretty epic, the way that she handled this creature. Although it's interesting that it barely seemed to be hurt. Like she got it out of their way, but it's sort of, I mean, it kind of splats on the ground, you know, three or four stories down. And then just kind of oozes off into a gutter, I think, or into a grate yeah. or something. So it's not mm-hmm. like it was really permanently damaged or anything, but she clearly saved Nancy from her alien 
I, I would say Alien 3 encounter. I feel like it was an okay. homage to, in particular, that film. Because if you recall, there's that scene where the alien kind of comes right up to her face in profile and kind of hisses. And the only reason it doesn't kill her is because she's pregnant at the, with an alien mm-hmm. or she was impregnated with an alien. So it doesn't want to kill her yet. So I'm just I'm not saying that's what happened is happening here, but it's just I, I was wondering Are you insinuating that Nancy's pregnant? <laughs> no, but I was wondering why and this is again a trope in these types of films and movies and shows that why not why is it screaming at her and just holding her down? Just kill her. Like what's the big what's the right. what's what is it waiting for? <laughs> yeah. It's just dramatic pause, you know. I think that's why I, I started feeling my own little like trope tingle <laughs> where right. that was happening. I didn't want Nancy to die and I thought the no, shot no. was really cool, but I didn't ever think that she wasn't going to in terms right. of like, she's too vested in this and we're too vested in her. What I was a little worried about when I first saw it was if one of those tentacles were going to come out and like, you know, oh yeah, attached to her yeah, mouth or something. That was a face where sucks. I was. Yeah, that's where I was actually thinking things might go. But yeah, she's she lived to face another day. And based on what happens at the end of this episode, I'm glad that didn't happen because everybody For that was sure. was flayed, as they call it, uh, essentially becomes goo. And uh, we'll get into that <laughs> later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right before that scene ends, you mentioned the creature oozes down the drain in the street, and there's a little shot of showing us a bone. Right. In there. Don't know what that means. I didn't really get an answer. My only assumption at this point, based off of this episode and what we've seen previously, is that it's just the remains of the people that it inhabited, the the flayed. Right. So I'm I'm assuming it's one of... um, either Bruce or the <laughs> editor guy. I forget his name, Tom, I think. That's yeah, all I can yeah. think of, unless it means something different or something more important, which I didn't pick up on. I I had the same question because if it's sort of slowly, you know, morphing these two organic bodies into one, yeah, there would be pieces of bone in there along with other organs and matter, but how did it get under the door earlier if... <laughs> Where did that bone, yeah. it couldn't get through the grate in the ground outside the hospital, but it could get through the door. So anyway, we will give that a pass. But I think it was, honestly, I think it was just meant to be like a cool effect, kind of like a gross out moment where like, oh, there's a bone left behind. You know, I don't think it yeah. has any real bearing on the sort of physics of this creature or what's actually happening. Thoughts like this are a product of the Duffer Brothers just saying that everything matters. <laughs> and even if right. you have a hang around shot of a bone from a liquid monster, you're like, what does that mean? And sometimes right. a cigar is just a cigar. Sometimes a bone is just a bone. Exactly. But I have to say, this was a, a pretty intense and briefer cold open before we got yeah. to the opening credits. Yeah, it's accented by a dead-eyed Billy with Heather saying... It's time. I'm like, okay, yes, it is time. It's time for the episode to start. Let's get past these credits and get right into it. So the the next scene we have, we're outside. It's the 4th of July. Yes, I'm so glad. You know, this is a summer show this year. 
I'm still believing we'll get to Christmas at some point in like an epilogue of some kind. <laughs> but for right now, it's 4th of July. There's prep happening all over. I'm excited because I love a good fairground. Every September, we have our state fair showing up. We actually went for the first time in several years last year. And it had all the good stuff. Had the food trucks, had the cotton candy, had the the carnival rides that you know are probably going to break down within two hours. And right. right at the center of this is Mayor Klein. He's out and about in his shades, hiding the uh, raccoon eyes that came yeah. courtesy of Hopper. Spots a, a hot dog vendor in the thoroughfare. And then he spots Hawkins Terminator, which we give a different name to every time. So I'm going to go ahead and call him Hawkins Terminator because that seems to be an easy way to remember him. And they decide to meet in the Gravitron. Question. One, have you ever gone to a fair? And two, if you did, did you ever get to ride this particular attraction? I've been to many fairs, but I've never been in a Gravitron. And to be honest, most as a kid, most rides that like spun really fast or did anything fast with motion didn't agree well with me. I would just throw up everywhere. (laughs) So I was not a kid that liked fast moving rides. I never liked okay. roller coasters. I just, I, I, I couldn't keep the food down. So I was not drawn to those types of things, but I loved every other aspect of the fair, in particular, the food and just, you know, the games, the prizes, all that kind of fun stuff. I like funnel cakes. Man, <laughs> funnel cakes. I could go for one right now. <laughs> Dude, now I want funnel cake. Thank you. Yeah. But no, thank you. <laughs> You're the best and we, the worst. We the made them once. We got a recipe and made our own. It was delicious. Really? Homemade you, you funnel can do cake? It, I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. I know you can, but should you is the question. I mean, funnel cake is clearly a carnival food. To make it at home feels a little bit sacrilegious, a little bit blasphemous. But You should give it a try. It's, it's fun. You can basically make the batter. It's kind of like making a pancake mix, and then you get a big pot of hot oil, and you just pour it in there and yeah there you go you can make a delicious crispy funnel cake at home we only did it once okay so then we are back at murray's house yay glad to see murray once again (laughs) hopper is bringing back a little burger king and a slurpee and he looks like a parent here in the way that he gets the you know gathers the bag and the drink and he puts the bag in his mouth. I mean, this is what I do when I'm bringing home dinner for my family, bag to dinner. I'm like, "All right, how can I get it all in one fell swoop and, you know, right. in my elbow arm, that kind of thing." I felt like he was just being right. very dad hopper at this point. Alexi is being questioned by both Hopper and Joyce as Murray translates. The whole bit with the Slurpee was just hilarious, cherry versus strawberry to sort of it's funny but I also love its purpose to just exacerbate Hopper's temper where he's just right. on the edge and needs to get answers. Like he's just so pissed off and so irritated at everything that's happening. It's just, it's great to see how he's like just kind of bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And then boom, out of frustration, he attacks Lexi and throws him out of the house, throws him the keys to the cuffs and the car. And this is where we get a big surprise with Hopper. I thought, wow, we think he's a doof. We think he's a washed up like police chief. And this is New York cop Hopper yep. where he he knows the mind of a criminal. He knows the mind of this guy. His explanation is fantastic. 
And I love that it pays off because you could have gone the opposite direction. You could have had Alexi go stop at the driveway fence and then go. And then Hopper looks just like a goof. But this is such a great moment of reinforcement that Hopper is not stupid. Like Hopper does know things and he has things to offer, even though he's going through all this like parental trauma that we are enjoying from a storytelling standpoint and laughing at Hopper is still a cop. I mean, this is a guy from New York. He's got history. And I love that we're seeing little bits of that on display here. Absolutely. Yeah. And the buildup to his kind of explosion was, you could see it happening. You, you're like, I just thought to myself, he's going to pop. He's going to explode. Any any second now, you could just kind of tell when he's kind of taking a deep breath in. He's not going to take this anymore. Yeah. He's just like a, he's like a pressure cooker, you know, just waiting to explode. And, and he does. But in this particular case, it was all kind of a ruse, as you said, to kind of get Alexi to essentially make the decision to want to stay and help them versus trying to convince him to do so. And that's what he does. He ultimately comes back and decides, well, I've got nowhere else to go. And it makes perfect sense. What's he going to do? He's in the middle of America, doesn't speak English. He can't go back to the Russian bunker because they'll just assume that he flipped. And he told the Americans all their secrets, so they'll probably kill him or put him in jail or prison, whatever. So, yeah, this is a a really smart move on Hopper's part. And now he's essentially on their side because he's like a defector now, essentially. And so he is going to be a valuable resource for them to understand what's really going on down there. Great way to end the scene. Hopper feels proud. And he flicks the keys like, yeah. I knew it. So just a, just a fun little. Another like to jo- another I told you so kind of moment to Joyce, you know, just like, yeah, he's uh, it's like halfway going date me now. I'm worthy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> See? See what I just did? See what <laughs> I just did? I'm, I'm smart. I'm smart. <laughs> yeah. Clean up on aisle I'm nine, cool. Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was we were talking about some of the pros and cons to this episode i think this this moment the scene was a good bit of comic relief that worked and i think it was it was helpful because it does move the story along we now we have alexi essentially who was the enemy now he's at this point we realize okay he's gonna play ball he's gonna defect and come over and help the good guys figure out Mm -hmm. how to fix this problem and we'll you know get into more of that later in the episode then the episode switches over to the underground Russian complex. This is where Dustin's explaining season two to Erica. And right. all she can focus on is the fact that her brother was there. So we're getting a little insight. She doesn't believe that her brother actually has the stones to do all the things that were going on. I mean, that's that's good sort of exposition for her. She shows off her math skills. Dustin accuses her of being a nerd. He says something like, you can't put the truth back in the box. I like that phrase. And and this is fun dialogue, especially the little bit about My Little Pony. I think this is where I feel like, and maybe I'll take a broad stroke approach to this. After this episode finished, I felt like the Russian stuff, the Russian underground, served really very little purpose other than to allow more people to know what's going on and for Dustin and Steve to realize this is season two all over again to an extent where a gate is being opened. I know that there's a lot more going on here and I'm sort of watering it down, but I really feel like the broad strokes of this whole subplot 
only gave me that. It's like, okay, cool. You gave Dustin and Steve insight. And now because they have that background already from previous seasons, they're going to be able to figure stuff out. I felt like the way we got to that point, though, felt a little too goofy for me. And I'll say this, the Russian like interrogation, the guys, the Russian dudes, they felt very cartoonish to me. It, and I think sure. that the yeah. problem I have is that in contrast with the scene in Murray's house, where there's still some funny parts, we're getting a lot more. We're getting the growth of another character with Alexi. The stuff with the kids at Hopper's cabin, same thing. We're getting some serious stuff here. And sort of threaded in between all this is this whole sequence with the Russian underground and we're not getting much more than just those things of two characters that we know getting the aha moment. I don't know how we could get to that point otherwise. So I'm not criticizing the method necessarily. I just felt like it was very, it seemed very inconsistent tonally with everything else that was going on. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if this was really happening, this would be a much scarier situation for these kids than it is. It's right. It's, very much being played for laughs. And I mean, granted, they do beat the crap out of Steve yet again, but, and he looks, he does not look good, but they're still joking. They're still making wise cracks. It just feels like they don't understand the gravity of the situation when in yeah. fact they should understand that more than anybody. Right. So when I, when I laugh, I'm laughing at the joke and this is a Thor Ragnarok kind of feeling that I get where, right. I'm not laughing at the situation and the folks' response to it. When I look at Hopper and the way in which he overreacts in the situation with Alexi because he's so frustrated, but he turns it on its head and ends up getting Alexi to come back, that's funny. It's mm -hmm. good drama. I mean, I never felt like anybody was in danger, but it was totally correct. Then you get to the scene where Dustin gives this like monologue about why Eric is actually a nerd and her facial expressions are just like, yeah, whatever. And Oh, I can't believe you figured that out. Right. It's like a joke being told in a movie where you're having a dramatic moment instead of providing right. levity, you're providing out of context humor, like inappropriate humor, especially because what would two kids of their age be doing if they were trapped in a air duct in an underground Soviet bunker, they would be scared out of their minds. They wouldn't be arguing with each other about who's a nerd or about My Little Pony. As much as it's funny, the dialogue is humorous. It does feel like it wouldn't be happening in this context. Like that's these are not yeah. conversations that these children should be having at this point. Exactly. In time. Yeah. And so as they're doing that, then we move over to these Russian soldiers who are interrogating Steve and they're pummeling him. I mean, that that's serious business. Like yeah. he is getting yeah. thwacked. It's not like it's cartoon hitting. I mean, they're really beating the snot out of him. They're asking him, who do you work for? And again, I was thinking, this makes me think of Austin Powers when he was like, who does number two work for? That's right, buddy. You show that turd who's boss. <laughs> I right. know that probably wasn't the intent, but that's what was going through my head. And, you know, there, there are some funny lines. You know, I think Steve's trying to keep a consciousness, one, because he's getting right. beat up. But, you know, he'll say something like, I don't know if you have Russian ice cream or if that's considered gelato. You know, that's that's funny to me. You know, it's like, oh, Italian right. ice cream. That's that's really hilarious. Right. 
but but like would he really be saying this again wise cracking yeah. if he's in that predicament most likely not i mean i think he mentions the uss butterscotch in, at one point it's yeah. like i mean i get it you got it's they work at scoops ahoy so that he's trying to convince them that he indeed does work for the for this ice cream store but it just again feels like this is not how i would behave in any stretch if i were captured and being interrogated <laughs> yeah i th- i think this is the difference between kids versus someone like spider-man and i think it's not just the superheroics but it's the confidence that spider-man as a character alludes when he's able to provide those little quips as he's fighting green right. goblin or something like that we trust him we trust that he can get out of these situations because he's got superpowers <laughs> he does he does. The radioactive spider has given him superpowers. But Steve doesn't, other than his hair. He's got Austin powers. That's what he has in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, his hair is his superpower. But we want to believe that these kids can do what they can do because they've shown resilience. They've shown right. insight. And they've shown the ability to get out of jams. It's not that I don't trust them. I think it's exactly what you're saying, which is you're not recognizing the gravity of the situation. And it's only when we get Steve alone with Robin later on in the episode that I feel like that's a genuine moment because they understand the gravity of the situation. But up to this point, I think this is where the disconnect happens for me. And I kind of wanted to get away from the Russian complex because I was looking at these uniformed people as like the mustache twirling villain who was like, you're going to get blown up or something in a minute. I mean, you're a red shirt at this point for me. (laughs) You don't scare me because you don't appear to scare the kids even though you can beat the snot out of some of them, I think that's what it is. The complex itself doesn't scare these guys because they're not responding to it in a way that everything feels dangerous. Like Dustin being able to get the fan to stop working by canoodling it, Erica knowing all this math stuff, it just feels more adult than what these kids are actually saying and experiencing. I think it's probably an exaggeration of what I felt for Erica as a character where she feels and acts more adult than she should. And I feel like the whole thing is happening in this situation. And it is worthy to note that this and the last episode were directed by a different director than the Duffer brothers or Sean Levy. So this might be part of the issue. It might, might be a tonal issue that this director was adding that may have just backfired a little bit. Certainly the dialogue was the dialogue, but this director may have just made some choices in terms of how to direct the actors or how to, to give the scenes certain comic flair that might have been just a little too far out of our comfort zone for this series. Yeah. I think the success of the episode lives in the scenes in Hopper's cabin with the, mm-hmm. the kids. That's actually what happens next. We're back in his cabin. Elle is looking for really anyone in her, what I call her mental space or her, I don't know what you'd call that. Um, She's specifically looking for the characters that we know have been flayed and she's not seeing anybody, which is kind of eerie. It kind of implies that they're, they're not here anymore because otherwise she would be able to detect them. Yeah. And uh, Nancy drew on the phone with the fertilizer and feed store. She's still doing her detective work. 
Nancy Drew, I mean that in the most kind sense, not in the of Bruce course. sense, because I don't want to get hit with scissors or whatever, or turn into a blob. So, you know, <laughs> no. Wheeler, Nancy Wheeler, I'm sorry. See, look at me. I'm just being confessing right now. Anyway, Nancy Wheeler Drew is on the phone and she's doing that. She says, there's a pattern. And she's asking the question, why did the mind flayers stop infecting? And these are like, yes, my question's exactly, Nancy. She says, if they're all infected, why can't Elle find them? I love a good detective story. And I really like that Nancy is the crux of this. Like she's the, she's the one delivering this. She is the detective. Obviously it, it extends from her conversation with her mom. She's going after the story. She feels like an MJ to me where she's yeah. really trying to find the truth. She's not just trying to get a scoop. That's for Steven and, and Robin because they're you know, scoops away people. But she's trying <laughs> right. to actually get, she's actually trying to get a real story because she, she wants to solve the problem. And I think that's right. what a real journalist does is not just trying to get clicks or not just trying to get the information out there, but really trying to find the truth. And so I like that they use her to ask the questions that folks like me are asking because those, those are legit like things I'm wondering why these specific people, he's not infecting right. anymore. Why a kid? Why an adult? Why certain people? And what is it about those particular ones that make them important? And I sort of feel a little cheated because, again, we'll, we alluded to this, but the end of the episode feels a little bit like, that's all? Okay, well, I'm hoping chapter seven and eight give us a little bit more. But I, I like that we're getting her asking the questions that I think we're all asking. I agree. And, uh, and yeah, and I think I might be mistaken, but I think one of the places she was calling was the farm where all the pumpkins died in the last That's season. right. She was. Yeah. 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 But apparently little, she's not getting the answers back. that she needs. Yeah. No. <laughs> With the goo. <laughs> I miss those two deputies, by the way. They have not shown up in I this know, season. They, I kind of miss them. Yeah. I thought they were in an earlier episode. At the police station. No, we see Flo give him the JCPenney bag with the shirt. Yep. And I, I can't remember if it was this season or not, but yeah. They provide what I consider to be good comic relief, just kind of like the mm -hmm. dumb, but just inept local police officers. Just kind of. Yeah, uh, they're local yokels. They're, yeah. yeah. They're the reason that my temper goes up when doors are already unlocked and children can sneak in and steal Demogorgon attacking weapons and stuff without being noticed. Right. But it's funny. Anyway, Mike's um, becoming a little overprotective of L, and Max is pushing back a bit. Liked this little bit between the two of them because I think it shows a lot about their characters. I've started to see this, that Max, I think, stands out from the crew because she's not letting the situation change her, and I think she makes a really good friend for L because she's not trying to get yeah. L to be like her. She's trying to get L to be like herself. I don't think that would be as genuine if we didn't see Max before this, like getting introduced to her last season as Mad Max, this kind of mysterious girl who can do things and play dig dug with the best of them. And then just <laughs> seeing kind of how you know, do things, whatever those things are. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Some things maybe. <laughs> I like a girl who could do things. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> That's a terrible way to describe her, right? No, I know. No, you're absolutely right. We talked about this. Yeah, she's she's a real independent spirit. 
I think she doesn't follow the pack and she's she's not swayed by popularity or any of the other things that kids of this age are concerned with. She's really just herself and I think she's does a great job of helping Elle to find that same independent spirit in, in herself. Yeah. And she being Max isn't the only one. Um, you know, she says to Mike about Elle, she's her own person. Everyone else seems to be supportive of Max's position. And Mike calls out Max and Elle for spying on them. He's like, you're not innocent in all this, Max. I love what he said. Friends don't lie. They spy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And again, this is one of those sets of dialogue that's played for semi-dramedy effect. It's funny. It's also very informative. And it captures the tone of what's happening in that scene. But when Mike says he loves Elle... The first time I watched it, I kind of groaned because I'm like, you're 12. You don't love anybody. And that's fundamentally true. I mean, you don't fall in love with somebody when you're 13 and you're really just physically attracted to them more than anything else. But Mike and I have history. And even from season one's like penultimate episode, or maybe it was the, the last one, he talks about bringing her into the fold, bringing her into his family. You can stay with us. We can Mm -hmm. get you more than egos. My mom's a great cook. There was an affection there that I think blossomed into an attraction physically that's manifested itself in the gross prepubescent kissing that we laugh at and kind of get grossed out at. But when he says he loves her, as I sort of started thinking about that in light of the last couple of seasons, I really do feel like that's his motivation for why he's trying to protect her. He makes some good points. I don't think he says it here. He makes it say it later that her powers are still untapped and she could destroy herself if she takes it too far. We don't know what the limits are. And so he's got real honest to goodness reasons for feeling the way he does. But I believe that it's manifested by the fact that he genuinely does love her, not just in a physical attraction. Like I want you to be my girlfriend and love on me day and night. I want you to be around. I want you to be with me for as long as possible because I've grown to care about you deeply. And so I I felt the sincerity of that moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think at this age, you may not fully understand what love is, but it's just that feeling that I I think that you care more about someone else's well-being than perhaps even your own. It's the selflessness. It's that I want this person to be okay. I want to make sure they're taken care of. I want to make sure no harm comes to them. That's a form of love. So I think he has that just like you would with, I'm not saying she's a, like a, a, an animal or a pet, but like if you had a, a dog and you can love your dog at this age and you don't want anything bad to happen to your dog, I think he cares for her far more than a pet and loves her in a more deeper way. But it's hard for anybody of a young age to fully comprehend what the word love means. So I think it's... Yeah. At his age, as far as he understands it, he does. I think he does love her and yeah. he genuinely wants to protect her and, and care for her and make sure nothing bad happens to her. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The end of that scene finishes with Elle coming out. She's like, what's going on, guys? And they're like, family business. <laughs> did not <laughs> did not say it like that. But they were like, yeah, we're just talking. And she goes, I found him. And we're like, I don't know how. But you did find him. No, that's a Back to the Future reference. No. <laughs> Run for it, Marty. Run for it, Marty. Run for it, L. <laughs> she should have based on what we saw. Anyway, but uh, we find out that it's Billy, but they're asking, you know, who? And we're left sort of wondering at that point. And then we're back at Murray's house. Another great scene 
where Alexei tells Hopper and Joyce that the Russians are using this key to generate power from Hawkins, but the reason they are in Hawkins is because Hawkins is where the gate is, like they were missing that part of it. Or it's where it's where the gate to this other world had once been opened before. And I think that was the key. Like that essentially their their key, their ability to open the doorway isn't strong enough unless it's someplace where where the gate had once been opened before. So there's like a yes, a thinness to the to that divide, perhaps. I think it's because Alexi said that this gate was still healing because it because it had been right. opened. And I think what's really cool visually, because you, know, you got the paper spread all over the floor, and you know we're not meant to read <laughs> everything, but it's always cool to, to see that stuff. I, I like his analogy where he uses the straw. By the way, that slushy straw still exists today where it has that little hook at the end of it where you can like grab the little slush. I don't know if you noticed oh, that, but that oh, straw, really? it's not like yeah. a, a straight straw, but it's got a little like yeah. indention, like a little divot in it. So it looks like a little spoon. Anyway, just for <laughs> the folks that, <laughs> nice. that saw that, that understand what I'm talking about. But he uses that straw and he uses the fry box to explain the Russian gate, that thick right. cardboard. But then he uses the, the Whopper wrapper which is a lot thinner and i thought that was really cool that he could have just used anything there but he really was being thoughtful in terms of like there's a thickness and there's a a significant deterrent in terms of like it being very fragile versus very solid the russian being solid and the one in hawkins being very fragile i thought that was really kind of a cool visual yeah it was kind of a, a little bit of a throwback to season one when Mr. Clark used a paper plate to illustrate you know the the acrobat and the, the fl- flea uh, was the fly the flea I was gonna say fly I was like no it wasn't a fly it was a flea <laughs> help me yeah. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum movie proud of that one but yeah so he was clearly trying to educate the the boys about you know traveling to another dimension and in the same way, using kind of uh, things around you to illustrate, to make it make the viewer comprehend better what the lesson that you're teaching. But yeah, he did a, a very good job yeah. of doing that here. I mean, good enough that Hopper and Joyce are picking up what he's putting down. They're like, oh, yeah. no. Well, and they are, yeah, they're like, oh, we know what he's talking about. <laughs> this is the revelatory episode where people are like, I get it now. Murray doesn't have any clue, but... <laughs> No, Murray's just there for translation and vodka. That's what he's there for. (laughs) And uh, as he's offering Hopper some vodka, Hopper says, if there's a way to start this, there's got to be a way to stop it, which leads Mm -hmm. to a conversation with Alexi asking, hey, can you turn off the machine? He says, yes, but he's compromised. You know, if he got out there, he'd be killed, much like what Hopper said. You know, if if he hasn't been around, he's probably been compromised. Hopper says that he can get him there, to which Alexi laughs and calls him Fat Rambo. But he appreciates his <laughs> right. desire to do that. <laughs> I thought that was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says uh, he says that basically it's impossible to break into this facility. And I think he said even Thin Rambo couldn't get in there. <laughs> <laughs> like if, if you were Sylvester Stallone, even he could not get into this Russian facility. Yeah, I mean... Fat Rambo, Thin Rambo, Rambo could not get in unless you're actually no. a child of the 80s, which we find out right. because the, the episode just cuts over to Dustin and Erica doing what adults who have a college degree <laughs> and like world experience can do. Uh, lots right, of ooze right. is being stored. Dustin sees a car, one of those little like go-kart thing, not go-karts, but like golf cart things, <laughs> looks yeah. for keys while Erica spies a cage. 
and asks about the size of Demogorgon. So I kind of got excited in that moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, are we going to see a Demogorgon? Because I hope we do. That's going to be kind of fun. Give us a throwback to season one for a minute. Right, right. Dustin finds the keys and Erica finds a Raptor shocker, Velociraptor shocker. And I was half half expecting Dustin to go, clever girl, you know, because... (laughs) And my yeah. assumption is that if they had a Demogorgon that subdues it a little bit and yeah, shocks you gotta, it You got to prod to it. You got to get it. Yeah, you got to yeah. keep it from uh, from biting your head off. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, a, dem- a Demoprod of some kind. Did you notice, because um, I did in this scene, why he was called Roast Beef by Steve? Because he's wearing a t-shirt that says Roast Beef on it. I don't know why, but that's what his t-shirt says. <laughs> I didn't notice that, no. <laughs> I was like, well, that makes sense. He probably, Steve turned around and saw him and was like, oh, come on, roast beef, you know, like referring to his t-shirt. I'm not sure why he's wearing that shirt, but that, yeah, there we go. Yeah, that makes total sense. Question answered. I, we were like trying to figure out why does he like to eat at Arby's? Like we, we, we weren't sure, but in, was it last episode or maybe the episode before? I'm not even sure. But yeah, it's, uh, it's his shirt. One other question for you that... Again, just seems far-fetched. This facility, underground facility, is quite complex, and it's like a labyrinth. And I just started thinking, wait, they were able to somehow manuf- build this facility in less than a year and on American soil, underneath American soil, and construct them all. So this is the one thing that kind of feels like, okay, I, I could see them having like a little lab room or something you know, that they built, but this giant underground facility... Unless they were constructing it long before the one-year mark and they just didn't realize that they needed to be there for this experiment to to take place. I mean, at the most, I think it's a year. Why would folks from Russia come before them when the gate opened a year ago? That was a question I had, too. And I'm thinking two things. One, how do you build this elaborate thing in that amount of time? And two... How are these kids able to get around? They don't have a map. They don't have a blueprint. They don't know where they're going. They have a long <laughs> corridor. Right. It's just ridiculous at this point with this underground yeah, facility. It's, like big, it's it's big enough that they can essentially get lost and evade yes. all these Russian yes. soldiers looking for them. And how do you not have cameras? Yeah, maybe they... I would argue that this is such a secure facility, they probably don't even think that they need cameras because no one but Russian... True. You know authorized personnel are going down there but the question still stands this is a somewhat far-fetched premise to convince myself of that it would be possible even in this science fiction world that we're living in (laughs) yeah the highlight of this whole like subplot was what came up next where we get back to robin and Steve, and they're tied up in this dental office slash like first aid room. Like, why do you have that? Again, it's just a facility that you can leave through the elevator of death or whatever. But I've stopped asking questions at this point when it comes to logic. What I do like is after they attempt to try to get out of the chairs and they fall over, got me thinking about The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones. Oh, yeah. They have this really great conversation. And I love how the the scene is shot. It's just back and forth, sideways, and they're just dialoguing. Again, we talk about how when you take a shot and make it more interesting, it, it makes the whole scene interesting. So an angle, like a Dutch angle, or shooting from the ground up on a reflection. I think this is another great cinematographic choice <laughs> yeah. to shoot a scene like this in light of what they're talking about. 
She starts out by saying, I can't believe I'm going to die in a secret Russian facility with Steve the Hare Harrington. (laughs) (laughs) And they conversate a bit about high school. She recalls how he was always late to this to class that she was in with him always having a bacon egg and cheese sandwich in the morning i thought that's a, that's cool that's it's a good visual you know you get this guy who's late yeah. but always has this, this great kind of breakfast sandwich every morning like where did he get that from his like eating, and he's eating it in the classroom and not and getting away yeah. with it <laughs> yeah he's he's privileged i mean he's privileged we knew yeah. that already but he's obviously academically privileged what well, academic and, in the sense that in and, the school uh, <laughs> probably a star of I don't know what sports teams he was participating in throughout the year, but he was yeah. probably good enough that he got away with stuff like that. You know, he was not uh, held to the same standards as the average student. No. And she is honest and she kind of says she resented that. She called him an ass and yeah, she said, even though all of us losers pretend to be above it all, we still just want to be popular, accepted, normal. That's really interesting that she considers the life that she lives of nerddom or geekiness or whatever abnormal, that the normality for her is the Steve standard, as opposed to what he sees, where he responds back, the grass isn't always greener. We had our fair share of crap that happened to us too. I think that the best thing about this subplot is that obviously we get more information about the mythology, Dustin, as I mentioned earlier, but this is also really important because... We hint at them having a relationship, but having a relationship, dancing around it, being sort of a rom-com, this scene is necessary, but it's, it has to be necessary, not just because they need to be in love or, oh yeah, it's the, she's all that girl. This is really about Steve having an investment because of what they've experienced over the last few days together. And I think that's what makes this whole conversation really genuine is that the things they're saying are confessions, but they're also sort of opening up themselves to say, look, here's the real me, and I kind of like the real you, that we're getting beyond the nerd jock facade. Yeah, and I think at this point, we actually get these two characters for the first time kind of facing their mortality. Like, the jokes have stopped now, and they're kind of realizing, this might be it. Like, we might really be in trouble here, and no one's coming to rescue us. And I think that's why they start opening up, as you said. And Yeah, this whole scene, it's all basically shot on the floor. They're laying on their sides and the cameras are essentially on the side, on the ground, on their side, filming them as as they act. But it's shot in such a way that you as the viewer are seeing them right side up, you know, facing forward and, and looking at the camera right side up but they're on their sides. And so I think it's great because in the position that they're in, they're feeling quite vulnerable. They're tied up. They're on the floor. They're not actually facing one another as they're having this conversation, but the way it cuts makes it feel like they're having a conversation face to face because you see them each on the other side of one another as they speak. So it's just a great use of, uh, yeah, of the camera and its placement to make a scene like this more effective. And the scene ends with the Russians coming in and starting the procedure to inject Steve with, I guess, truth serum or at least some kind of like inebriated thing where he's more susceptible to telling the truth. Who do you work for? And he's like, scoops ahoy, because that's the truth. (laughs) Don't work for my dad, apparently, (laughs) because he's not letting me take over the family business yet. 
I think it's um what was it in True Lies when they give him the truth serum it was like sodium pentothal or something like that. It's like a real substance. Yeah. That if you give it to him, then you're just, you just like you feel so loopy that you just kind of say whatever. Like mm-hmm. you don't have a chance to make something up. It's just kind of just say what's real, like what you really feel, kind of comes out, and it, you know that seems funny because he's like first i'm going to kill the guy over there i'm gonna throw the knife i'm gonna break this guy's neck and and then he does exactly all those things yeah (laughs) exactly in the order (laughs) yes i feel the way that steve does every six months when i go get my teeth cleaned i request the nitrous oxide and i'm unapologetic about that because it makes me feel good and makes my day it's the best part of my day when i go to the dentist and uh get to experience that Then we're back at Hopper's cabin, and after taking a break from spying, Elle reveals that Billy is staying in his room on the 4th of July. Not normal, according to Max. And I'm like, seriously, Max? You still think Billy is normal after all of this? Like, that piece of dialogue made me laugh, because I'm thinking, Max, after all you've experienced and what you've seen, Billy is taken over. He's been flayed, at least in part. Right. Yeah, it's not Billy. It's... (laughs) You're, you're thinking of him the wrong way. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I, I, she's just, I think she's just trying to convince everyone else in the room, if they're not on board yet, that that he is not who he normally is. That he, that normal Billy would be out, would be out hanging out, drinking, cruising for girls on the Fourth of July. Right. That that's what he would be doing if he's just sitting in his bedroom. Then something is amiss. Dotson, we got Dotson here. See, nobody cares. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the kind of attitude I feel like she's giving us here. Yeah, yeah. So they've discussed this, and if they go after Billy, the Flayed will know where they are, which could be good or bad, depending on what side of the group you fall on. There was really cool dialogue. You know, you've got some differing opinions here. And right. then someone says, we have to find the source. And so Elle's like, I volunteer as tribute. And she puts the bandana back on. Gets her Kleenexes yeah. ready. Sorry, tissues, not Kleenex. We don't know if they're actual Kleenexes. She moist towelettes. Does this moist? <laughs> Those would be better, yeah. Because if you're the way earlier in the episode, you know, she had been kind of wiping her nose, like and yeah. essentially wasting tissue. I mean, you can reuse that. Yeah. It's just a little drop of blood. But if she'd use moist yeah. towelettes, I'm sure it wouldn't be as irritable on her nose. It wouldn't be, you know, she's like, I need something with moisture in it. Yeah, you got to clean up. You know, a tissue or. Something just, it just smears the, the blood across your upper lip. You need to like clean it off. Why not just stick a little like cotton squab up your nose, like a little cotton ball? There you go. And then just catch the blood. That way you're not having to wipe and, and you can keep your concentration. Yeah, like if you have a bloody nose, right? You just stick some this something up saying. there to, to block it. And then the blood just <laughs> coagulates and yeah, there you go. Exactly. You're all good. Why are they not hiring us to write this show? I don't know. I don't know either. That's a good question. We, we have to find, I'm going to write them a letter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> fax it to them (laughs) one of the things that motivates Elle to do what she's about to do is that flashback to her connecting with her mom that gives her the idea she says we can't go to billy but i think there's another way a way to know where he's been and so of course we know what's about to happen i'm like oh gosh now it's getting serious again this is this is where the tone is like yeah all right right and so she attempts to go into billy's mind she says he can't hurt me not in there she says mike i need you to trust me and I'm thinking that's that's never good to hear or to say. It's like saying I'll be right back. It's like saying, right? What's in this dark room in the basement? What's going on down here? We know something bad's going to happen. I'm just yeah. sitting back with my popcorn, going, "All right, show me what you're going to show me. What's going to be bad?" <laughs> right. So she finds Billy, takes his hand. He looks at her. 
grabs her arm. <laughs> this is a great contrast. She's like gently caressing his hand. She goes, Billy, Billy. And he's like, Ugh! and he like grabs her arm with the jump scare. And then she starts right. flashing back. Uh, well, she starts falling back first. You got to fall back to flashback, apparently, when you're in this world. And she right. reveals all these things to the group uh, that she's on a beach and she sees a woman. Billy is a little boy body surfing. Max says, yeah, that's California. That's, that's a memory. And then Elle says, I think I see it, the source. The next thing we see is her looking down the beach at the upside down storm in the distance. Thought this was kind of cool. We hear her dialogue and then we see that and we're like, oh, the source is in Billy's mind, but we know where the source is. And I love how it sort of tricks us because what she actually sees is what we have not experienced yet in her little trance that we're about to but we eventually get to the source. And I thought that was an interesting choice to sort of storytell in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was nice to see too, that the, the source in her mind, or at least in Billy's mind, where I I'm assuming we're kind of in Billy's mind. So in Billy's mind, this source exists in a sort of almost surreal place. Like it, it, there's not an actual location for it. It's somewhere else, which that somewhere else clearly is, the upside down. So even whatever source is here on our plane in our world might not be the true real source. That might be somewhere else. Okay. So my question then is later on, we get that same line. I think I see it, the source. And then they ask what it is. And she says, it's the steelworks. So are you saying that when she says it the first time, she's immediately seeing the storm and she's saying that it's the upside down for her? Or is it what I kind of interpreted, which is we're seeing in her mind, she's living out this sort of sequence of flashbacks that we get to experience with her later. But in that moment, we're seeing sort of the truncated version where she says, I think I see at the source and she's actually at the, the steelworks. Well, like, I don't think she's seeing the steelworks yet because she sees that kind of red color of of the upside down, you know, the kind of the visual that we have often seen in some of the kind of flashes that Will has had in the past. So I think she's seeing the source from the upside down is what she's kind of saying. The source that when Billy was having his kind of weird flashes early in the season, remember, and he was seeing like all these bodies, I think she's seeing that kind of the source meaning whatever's communicating with Billy is kind of okay. what I was taking away. Whatever, not, gotcha. not like the physical source meaning like where all the, you know, where Billy is and where all the, the flayed are in the steelworks. Like that's also, I guess, the source of the creature, where the creature is, but is, but yeah. what's, what's behind the creature? What's controlling mm-hmm. the creature? Because the creature that's just what... seems to be a biological mass of, you know, of rats Goo. and humans. <laughs> Yeah, and goo. <laughs> Feces. Anyway, yeah, I think... <laughs> anyway. I think you can make the argument for both. I think I leaned more into she was seeing the physical steelworks and we were just catching the tail end of her experience when she says that line because she says it again. I think I was thinking about Ellie in Contact when her experience mm. was lengthy, but to the rest of the world, it was instantaneous. And that's kind of what I felt from this. Could be wrong. And your interpretation yeah, is I, just as valid. I don't know if there, yeah, I don't know if there's a specific, it, it, I think this is the kind of scene where all of what we're seeing, like the flashes and all of it, it's meant to sort of create sort of a chaotic sense of 
what's yeah. really happening right now. Like this is just sort of Elle's interpretation of visually of her going into somebody else's mind. Like what would that visually look like? Like what would you see? How would you experience somebody else's memories? If you're in somebody's mind, would you see them like you were standing next to them watching them or would you in fact see them from the point of view of that young boy body surfing most likely that's the way you would you would see those memories if you were observing someone's memories from inside their brain so i think it's just sort of an abstract interpretation okay yeah that's fair that's fair so then we move to murray's house jim makes a call to the philadelphia public library not (laughs) That's not at all. Yeah. It's actually a secret phone facility. I don't know where this is, but it's a guy who answers the phone and he's a liaison to apparently getting in touch with Sam Owens, the doctor from the previous season. And I'm kind of excited that we might get to see Paul Reiser again. Right. Um, Hopper clearly has never called a secret phone line before. And no. <laughs> I love David Harper's <laughs> delivery of these next lines. He goes, Philadelphia Public Library. Uh, this is Jim Hopper, uh, Police Chief Hawkins. I got this number from Dr. Sam Owens. What is your identification code? Identification code. You don't know it? You must be joking. Oh, no, I, oh, I got it. I got it. <laughs> I got it. I got it. You wrote it down and kept it in your wallet? <laughs> of course, that's what, that's what Hopper would do. Yeah. <laughs> of course it would. <laughs> And so while Murray's upset about being compromised with the giving of his phone number after Hopper talks to this guy saying, have Sam call me, please, at this number, Joyce, going into detective Joyce mode, kind of turns her attitude up. Again, this is the same attitude that she shows Murray. But this this is a different part of Joyce that I start to like. I remember when we first started doing this series, I was like, yeah, didn't really like Winona Ryder because she was really schizophrenic and just crazy. Right realize that she had reasons to be. This is a great expansion of her character where she is assertive, where she's smart, where she's like, I know what's going on. And she calls the guy back and she calls herself antique chariots, partner wheelbarrow (laughs) and demands (laughs) that you get the guy, you get Sam on the phone, you have him call us right now to which he's like, Yes, ma'am. I will absolutely do that. So she's got some authority in that voice yeah, of hers, yeah. even if she has no credibility outside of that. Absolutely. And I've, I have to agree with her that Hopper was a little wishy-washy, like not expressing the urgency of the situation nearly enough. True. So Very I true. think she did the right thing. But I like how, I think it was, what was it Hopper that says, it was only one minute ago that he called. Like she didn't give him more than a minute before she decided to call back. Well, and she says, one minute is one minute too long. (laughs) Let's go get our children. And then they pack up and head back to Hawkins because that's where the party's at. (laughs) Right. Because they're in Illinois. 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 (laughs) You sound just like L. That's great. (laughs) That's what I was going for. Well, and you nailed it. Nailed it. Back at the Russian facility, uh, a couple of drug kids think there's nothing wrong, but of course there is because they're under the influence of whatever that drug is. Here comes the trophy surgical tools. Back to the who do you work for nonsense. (laughs) Finally, Robin says, we heard a code and basically insults the Russian guys. And this works for me because I don't believe the validity or the strength of these Russians outside of our, our Schwarzenegger. I think that the way in which they are just laughing at the Russians, even though they know they're probably in deep doo-doo, 
it, it works for me in this scene because of how goofy yeah. it is. And then Steve confesses the potential plan on how the Russians are going down to which the Russian doesn't believe it, obviously, because why would you believe a guy in a sailor outfit that's talking about <laughs> slinging ice cream? Yeah. <laughs> the alarm goes off. Just as he's basically like laughing at Steve's comment about how it's all going right. to, they're, they're going to be in big trouble. And so it was kind of like perfect timing. Of course it was. And then in comes Dustin with the Raptor Shocker and he frees Robin and Steve. So I'm guessing they get out through one of the many mapped out paths that they've taken because they apparently know how to get back to where they need to go to. We don't see them for the rest of the episode because we're now back in Billy's mind, as you alluded to. And this is kind of where yeah. the, the episode finishes off in a really great sequence of visuals and dialogue. There are flashbacks to Billy's dad berating him. And Elle, I don't know if you noticed this. It's all in slow motion. Elle's running along the beach. She sees these sort of pocket memories on the beach, even though they're not taking place on the beach. They're just sort of stacked right. there. Yeah. And she has this like nonverbal reaction to his dad. Like she can't interact with his dad as he's berating him, but she looks back and she shows this angry face. And that was a really interesting choice directorially to, to have her do that because you can read into it. And I, I kind of felt like, Oh yeah, because you know, she's had bad fatherly relationships with Papa and, and that kind of stuff. And maybe she's feeling some sympathy for, for Billy, but on the other end, you could have just had her not even acknowledge that, that she's just a bystander. She's a spectator just watching that. I think they're really trying as much as they can to humanize Billy here by saying, look, he's just a product of his upbringing. And they're trying to show L that, you know, even quote unquote normal kids who weren't raised in a laboratory can have really hard childhoods and have really difficult, strained relationships with their parents. And so yeah. she's not alone in that sense, you know, that, and now we, as the, the viewer start to think, Oh, you know, maybe Billy isn't really all that bad. Hopefully he won't turn into a pile of goo with everybody else. <laughs> yeah. More flashbacks, including um, his dad and his mom fighting his mom leaving uh, and on the phone with Billy saying, don't, you know, please come back. Uh, just really sad, just heartbreaking. And uh, yeah. young Billy beating up a kid and then finally introducing Max to the fold, which kind of gets us a little bit closer to what we're familiar with. And then it sort of speeds up and gets us back to flashbacks for us of previous scenes from the season that points to the steelworks. And that's where the kids ultimately are getting ready to go to. I think if the episode has anything going for it, it's really great use of shots, like really creative shots. After she reveals the source, she takes the blindfold off. And the first thing I see is her nose isn't bleeding. And I'm right. like, what? Yep. And then nobody's around. And I'm like, oh, great. She's still in Billy's mind. This is a dream within a dream. She's getting incepted. Right. Well, she's getting incepted. <laughs> exactly. And she's calling for Mike, but Billy shows up. And man, the creep factor just goes up to 11 no pun intended, uh, where we see him, he puts the cigarette out and he says just a few snippets that I latched onto. Now we yeah. can all see you. So there's a pluralness <laughs> and the infected start getting called to the steelworks at this point. Like you see, I think Heather and her mom are being sort of drawn to the steelworks. He says, right. you let us in. And now you're going to have to let us stay. So I'm 
interpreting she's got some authority over him to an extent, maybe like, I won't say parental, but some kind of like small control power over him, them. They say, we've been building it for you. And then he says, we are going to end you, end your friends and end everyone. I was really left confused, honestly. I don't know what the motivation is here. I feel like... And you're not meant to. I'll just be honest. Okay. um, Okay. The explanation for everything being said here is not revealed for some time. That's all I'll say. Okay. It's meant to be sort of like a few more laying down of or planting of seeds that will eventually pay off down the road. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. And so the scene ends, the episode ends with all of these people that we have, some we know, some we don't, who are walking to the steelworks, coming down to the basement, and one by one, what I would call deconstruction happens. So they come in, and they just sort of dissolve, and they start forming into this part of the mind flayer. I find it interesting that Heather is one of them. Yeah. I would expect Mrs. Driscoll... Her mom, for sure. But Heather has been sort of the partner of Billy. At least we've perceived that. He is not, though. That's the other interesting thing, is that right. he's not one of these gooey bubbles. He's watching as all this happens. Yes. So clearly, as the first person to be flayed, I guess, he has a special place still in the hierarchy, perhaps. And the last shot we have, Adam, is the first really clear shot of what I would call the non-shadow mind flayer. So right. sometimes what was going through my head is that at the end of season two, we have the upside down mind flayer who is like hovering over the upside down right. high school and or Hawkins middle school. And I almost think that one of the theories or one of the thoughts I have is that the mind flayer needed flesh needs physical things like chemicals and things from living creatures in order to be, like exist in this actual world. So like he couldn't exist apart from having a physical connection to our world in order to come through the upside down. So we have the gate from season two that's open, but he never comes through it because I remember I was reminded that when L was closing the gate, we saw the shadow of the mind flayer behind it. And so I think this season is sort of putting us in a position where we're thinking, He's had to attach himself independently to all these different people in order to build his strength so that he could eventually come through physically. And that's the last shot that we get is him busting through the grate. And that's why I think that creature in the hospital was sort of like an appendage of him or a part of him. Right. Because yeah, it looks like a, nothing like him. It's it's right. sort of like a byproduct or a, an appendage, a, a disconnected appendage of this mind flare. No, I think you're right on in that the, essentially what we have here is the is the remains after L closed the gate at the end of last season. As you said, there was that kind of that swirling cloud of debris or dust or, or smoke, whatever you want to call it. And that essentially was the remaining essence of the Mind Flayer trapped on this side. And it has slowly been sort of finding a way to take physical form. And yeah. using organic matter, but starting with rats and then building up yeah, people that... to form a body for itself. Because we still, the, the gate has not been reopened yet. All, there was that slight moment in Russia, right? But that was a year earlier where we saw something coming through, but then it closed immediately. And clearly this gate that's beneath the mall is opening, but not open yet. 
So what right. we're seeing is all basically the remnants of the previous opening that occurred in season two. And it's just taken a year for it to sort of find it's sort of like Voldemort, you know, kind of coming right. back. It needs it needs time. It needs people to to help it grow strong again. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that came to mind. I couldn't put my finger on it, but you're 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 right in that we're taking a page out of the Harry Potter playbook in terms of right. bringing this entity back that is beyond the realm of reality. And I think that that's if that's where we're going, it's very intentional and it's interesting. It creates a sense of okay, this is different. We have the same character in terms of the mind flare. You'd think if you're watching season one, Demogorgon, season two, Demodogs and the Mind Flayer, season three, oh, still the Mind Flayer, but now it's a Mind Flayer in our world that has right has come across that doesn't need a gate to come through because it's found a way through physical means by attaching itself. Right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It still may have some of the weaknesses that, you know, we've learned, like it may not like the cold and all those things, but it's still, that's why probably it's down in a basement in the dark because it's cooler, right? And why it maybe only likes to come out in the end of this episode at night because the sun's not out. But yeah, it's right. it clearly has figured out a way over time to reform or to find a new, a new form to... Uh, go after L, I guess, based on what, what we learn, that it wants to first take down L and then all her friends and then everyone else. So it has very uh, bad intentions. <laughs> I'll just, I'll be nice. Well, all right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of an original series. Adam, what's coming up next? Chapter seven. So it's the uh, last second or the pen penultimate episode, second to last episode. There you go. It's called, it's called The Bite. And uh, this brings back, as I mentioned, the Duffer Brothers as both writer and director for these final two episodes. So I have a feeling they're going to be pretty good in wrapping things up. They do a good job usually with <laughs> kicking things off and wrapping them up. I think we've learned through our watches of this show that it's when there are episodes that are less than we hope, they're typically the middle chapters somewhere. But they usually right. start out really good and, and end really, really strong. So hopefully that will continue. I've never been disappointed with penultimate or ultimate episodes <laughs> of Stranger Things. So if the streak keeps going, that'll make me happy. Oh, and I'll just want to add that we did finally see Mrs. Driscoll kind of explode. So we were. No, no. I mean, that was a no, she melted. She yeah. just kind of, you know, landed on the ground and just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> all of them did that they just sort of did yeah. a face plant into the and, and goofied or whatever yeah. you want to call and the, it and, and smartly the clothes were still present it wasn't like the clothes just liquefied too they they remained on the ground which was that's what would happen you know the only only the yep. organic material would yeah. liquefy and and merge with yeah. the bigger creature so the mind player is not big into fiber so no. no no clothing for him keeps the protein and the carbs at a, at a balance but you know the fiber it'd be funny if it like took the whole thing and then it like kind of spit out the clothes <laughs> afterwards <laughs> like my flare poop is what you do yeah poop yeah that, right <laughs> we're thinking the same thing that's pretty sad it's like a big pile <laughs> of clothes in the corner <laughs> 
All right. Well, thanks for tuning in and joining our conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here. 